Hello, this is Pixelated Playgrounds, a gaming book club podcast discussing the art and craft of video games. I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Kalecki. And today, we're talking about Dicey Dungeons and Luck Be a Landlord. Now, duck-building roguelikes have been become their own genre ever since Slay the Spire became a hit. Today, we're going to be taking a look at a couple of roguelikes that take their inspiration from different parts of the casino. Dicey Dungeons <laughs> and Luck Be a Landlord. That's right. I uh, I know you were playing Luck Be a Landlord and um, wanted to bring it in for a little roguelike roundup action, and um, I happened to be playing Dicey Dungeons, and I was thinking, hmm, dice, slot machines, where do we find both of these things? A casino. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to the first ever casino edition of Roguelike Roundup. Uh, now, we've done a couple of these um, roguelike roundups before, and one of the things I like about them is that we kind of like compare and contrast a little bit. So I was thinking it'd be fun to uh, give kind of a one-word answer that's going to be what the difference between the two that we're going to be focusing on, uh, each of us respectively. For my, uh, for my money, the difference between these two games is pace. How about you? Hmm. For the, the difference for me uh, is actually framing. Um, I think we'll, we'll get into why that might be as we, we go along, but uh, I think mine is probably contrary to why I actually chose this to be paired <laughs> with, uh, chose Dicey Dungeons, rather, to be paired with Luckbeal Landlord. All right, well, let's get into it. So starting off with Dicey Dungeons. So Dicey Dungeons is uh, the third commercial outing by Terry Cavanaugh, who many people will know for VVV, VVV, and Super Hexagon. Um, but he has made just a shit ton of games over the years. Uh, if you go to his site, Distractionware, you will find uh, probably a game for every month between now and 2016. That's pretty crazy. This is literally the first time I've learned that this was him who made this game. It seems so different in style from his other outings. At least the two you mentioned, which are the two I'm familiar with. Well, to be fair, he also had a lot more support for this one than he did before. Uh, he had a small team working with him for this. Uh, not an official studio, just a, a group they're calling Team Dicey Dungeons. But um, yeah, I think uh, on top of that, he did continue to collaborate with the same uh, musician, chip tune artist, rather, that he has worked with in the past. Chipsel uh, is the name of the, the artist, and they are awesome. I did enjoy the music for this game quite a bit. Very jazzy. Mm-hmm, for sure. But why don't we talk a little bit about what this game actually is and does. Um, is there sort of a game show-like backdrop going on here? And basically you have uh, a sort of sinister-looking Lady Luck who challenges adventurers who she turns into dice and makes them go through a dungeon to compete to win their freedom. As they go through and compete in this dungeon, they are fighting enemy monsters, boss monsters, picking up equipment, upgrading it, um, managing health and resources, all that kind of thing. So there's five different stages plus the boss at the end of it. Yep, and we'll get into it, but there's a lot of variety that gets packed into how they unfold that. Um, it starts off very basic and uh, slowly sort of iterations get placed on it and different conditions and things of that nature but it all does stay with that same initial formula you get equipment and abilities 
Um, they're activated with a roll of dice, which happens each turn, but the sort of ability to, or the, the way you acquire and deploy those abilities uh, changes drastically between uh, not only the characters, but also the scenarios they put you through. You'll take those abilities into battle, and during battle, you take up to six pieces of equipment with you. And these things are like double-handed axes or magic spell books or something like that. And each piece of equipment wants a different type of die. Like maybe um, one piece of equipment does the same amount of damage as the die you place in it, up to a maximum of four or five. Or another one just wants an odd number, or it wants a six specifically. So it kind of plays around with the kind of dice that you're trying to get with each roll and what you can do with those. Yeah, on top of just uh, straightforward attacks that damage your enemies, you also get uh, ways to sort of affect the dice that you're working with. You can get ones that bump the value, decrease the value, split the dice, or flip the dice over, you know, if we're getting a little more technical. Um, But there's just a a vast variety of these different types of uh, dice and, and abilities that you can get. And in addition to even just affecting it, you can get attacks or uh, uh, items that inflict status effects on your enemies as well. I thought that was a pretty cool little part of the game, Um, inflicting these status effects. I mean, there's poison. Everybody loves poison and a good roguelike. Um, But there's also things like you can set your enemy's dice on fire. And then if they want to use the die, they have to take extra damage. Um, You can freeze their dice, which takes a uh, takes a die and it makes it um down to one it takes the value down to one you can lock up the dice so they can't use it you can uh shock the enemy so that their equipment their abilities um are harder to use each turn i also liked how they played this into the element or the element system of the game like if you come across a snowman enemy and he's strong against ice then not only will the attacks that you do that are ice-based against him be less strong, but also he'll have attacks that take advantage of being frozen. Like he'll have attacks that activate with a one on the dice. Mm -hmm. So um, they sort of double up on the thematic elements of like what makes an enemy distinct from each other. And there are a lot of interesting and distinct enemies in this game for sure. I learned that early on. Don't freeze the snowman. It just brings you (laughs) a world of hurt. Yes, indeed. Um, but I, I, I just, I still feel like every time I play this game, and given I've only maybe played a dozen hours or so, but I still feel like I'm often seeing new cards and new, um, even new enemies sometimes. And it's surprising to me that that's still happening because uh, from the outset, this seems like a relatively simple game. I don't know. I actually maybe disagree a little bit. I feel like they did not bring out the enemies quickly enough for me uh for this game i got through playing with the first five characters and then i went through four episodes as well and at that point i realized i had gotten what i wanted to from the game but it wasn't as engaging i but i remember playing those episodes when you win at an episode you get a challenge trophy to say you won and it gives you like a little background bio on a particular enemy um, and you get some jokes a little bit of humor about it it's all very corny but it it fits in well and I remember seeing just with those um, probably the the 10 or 11 achievements I unlocked uh, seeing like oh half of these enemies I never met in the game 
<laughs> yeah, so they do do this fun thing where every time you complete a run, you, you get a little like glossary entry for an enemy or, or something, an achievement, basically, and you unlock some fun snappy writing for that. But, you know, we, we glossed over the fact that there are a bunch of different characters. You said you unlocked five. There's six total, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we should talk a little bit more about those various characters, because to me, this is where sort of the generosity of the game shines, right? Like, this to me, would be a pretty complete indie game, maybe not like a full-fledged, you know, 15 or $20 game, whatever it is, with just the initial, you know, warrior. But there are six different characters, and they all play drastically differently, to my uh, point of view. I did really like the differences in the characters. Not only did they pick up different equipment, they had different odds for doing that, uh, but the character abilities, especially as you get outside the first two, the character abilities really make them feel like they're playing differently. Yeah, agreed. So you start off with the warrior who's basically, you know, bog standard. You're trying to do as much damage as possible with your dice, and you get pretty straightforward abilities and equipment uh, during his runs, basically, that correspond to you want to maximize your dice numbers. As you go through, the first one you unlock after that is the thief who steals enemies' abilities. So immediately you open up an entirely new world. And um, uh, I think I had a really memorable run, and I think it was like my second ever run as the thief where I stole an ability that turned me into a bear. And I completed (sighs) the run as a bear dice instead of the thief. And then at that point I realized that this game just had a lot more going on than I sort of realized on the surface. Were you know when I played as a thief, I don't remember being able to take an ability from one battle to the next. Um, but you transformed Correct. into a bear, and you were just a bear from that point on. Yep, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, it's pretty wild. Um, so I guess there's a, a, six, uh, a seventh class here, uh, the bear, but only <laughs> playable by the thief. Um, after that, there's the inventor, which for my money is easily the hardest character to play. Um, robots next, I think robot and then inventor. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sorry about that. But, um, yeah, well, maybe we'll talk about the robot first then, because, uh, I like the robot actually probably my favorite character to play because it's agree. basically, yeah, basically blackjack the character <laughs> which is, <laughs> is great with these other characters. You start off with a set number of dice each turn. Like, uh, you start off with one or two or three dice, Four dice, depending on your level. Um, With the robot, you start off with no dice, but then you can click a button that rolls you a new dice. And as long as the sum total of all the dice you've rolled that turn does not pass up a certain limit, uh, you can still keep rolling new dice. Right. And the goal is to hit the sweet spot where you're exactly hitting your target number, you know, whether and that target number increases over time, allowing you to roll more dice as they as the robot levels up. So basically, you're trying to get as close as possible or land on the exact sort of blackjack number before going over. And if you do land on that number, you unlock special abilities that the robot can use. Um, This was really fun. And I had a really successful build of the robot where basically, I wanted to maximize my blackjacks, so to speak. So this wasn't meaning that I was trying to maximize my damage output. I was just trying to maximize my ability to manipulate dice and get blackjacks. (laughs) So that was pretty fun. Like, there's a lot of variety for building you can do with the robot. I think the robot was my favorite character as well. I I liked the risk versus reward and the kind of like pushing your luck a little bit. I felt that played into the strategy for the robot too, because... You might have two different options. You roll a, you 
click the dice, you get one of the dice. You're like, well, do I go for another roll now? Do I change around the order I'm doing my attacks based on what I'm getting over here? Um, probably the most interesting character for me. Yeah, definitely agreed. Um, but maybe we should uh, talk about the next one, the inventor uh, who I touched on earlier. Uh, the inventor, it, like I said, for my money is the most difficult because it requires a ton of planning to make sure that you're set up right to go into the final or later areas because every time you uh, get a new piece of equipment or every time you finish a battle you're forced to scrap a piece of equipment rather that you're carrying and that gives you a new special ability but it also gets rid of that piece of equipment so you need to make sure you always have something around that you don't mind losing it made inventory management uh, gave it a different twist because you might have that really good weapon uh, and you could scrap it for a really good ability, but then you are lacking that good piece of equipment in future battles. So it required a little bit of strategy around that. And the thing is, you're only going to get that piece of equipment for one battle. So mm-hmm. Or that special ability, yeah. Yeah, so so if you're thinking about this in terms of how do I set myself up for the final boss fight with the inventor, you need to make sure that you're willing to give up a strong ability, but then also have one in your inventory bucket that you can pull out and reslot, because you can't just have one or the other going into the the final boss fight. You need to be at full strength. Uh, worth saying is that the inventor gets a lot more treasure chests, treasure chests on their runs. They're, the uh, level layout is lousy with them. Yep, very true. And they also have an interesting ability that allows them to turn all their dice into sixes on a sort of limit break. We haven't touched on limit breaks yet, but each character does have um, an ability unlocked through taking damage that uh, you know functions like a Final Fantasy-style limit break, and, and usually um, it t- tilts, the, uh, tilts the scales in your favor drastically. And uh, the inventors especially so, especially if you have a lot of ability to manipulate those dice and split them or turn them into additional... Um, firepower in one way or another. Mm-hmm. I like the limit breaks as well because they kind of told you what you should be aiming at with the uh, character strategy. Like I think with the thief, uh, you're supposed to go for kind of lower numbers, and the thief's limit break is rolling a bunch of extra ones. So you get a bunch mm-hmm. of extra one dice, uh, which you can make do with as you will. Yeah, I think it's especially fun to have the thief and subvert that getting all ones with then having something that manipulates those ones into something else or, um, you know, uses a dice and then gives you a dice back or something like that. Because if you have a one and you get something back, odds are that something's going to be better. <laughs> so <laughs> it's interesting. Um, they're, the limit breaks, I agree, add a, a nice variety. But let's close out the rest of the classes. Um, we haven't talked about the witch yet, who for me is probably one of the more interesting ones, but I never got very good with her. Uh, she is a spell book instead of her backpack full of equipment, and they only can contain six spells at a time, and they on- and she only has four slots for equipment. However, you can have the same spell more than one time. So basically, you're, you're acting like a D&D mage, right? You have to memorize and prepare your spells every battle, uh, which is an interesting sort of setup, but you could also create a really overpowered set of equipment by doing that in the right way. There's a lot of planning involved with the witch, not just in terms of what spells you have in your book going into it, but uh, the setup time for the witch is a lot longer too. Like um, 
if you have a, a fireball spell in your book, you can't cast it right away. You have to spend a dice to unlock it and bring it into your active ability slots. Yeah, so it, it pays with the witch in my opinion. And again, like, um, don't treat this as like pro tips or anything. I'm just uh, just good enough to like barely continue to win uh, rounds at this game. But for me, the strategy of the witch uh, teetered around making sure that I could either disable or protect myself while I prepared all the spells that I wanted to do to really get rolling from a power perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the final character, uh, it doesn't sound like you played him, Josh, but is the jester, who you actually fight as a boss for uh, several runs through the game. And then once you defeat him enough, you unlock him as a character. And his build is way different than all the others in that it's actually the closest to a traditional deck builder of all of the characters. Um, You start off with a a set of cards that you sort of cycle through and they reload every turn. But then you also get booster packs as you level up and you get to sort of pick which path you want to go down from a specialization perspective. And you get the ability to call them sort of like you do in, say, Slay the Spire. I would say it plays closest to Slay the Spire with one twist. Uh, If you have doubles of any card, you can use an ability to instantly uh, discard them and move your card cycle through, allowing you to manipulate what moves you have at a given time a lot more than any other character. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. That sounds like a nice mechanic. It is. I would recommend unlocking the Jester just to like try around with them. It doesn't take too long. I think you you basically just have to win the game maybe five, six times probably to, to face the Jester enough that you face him as the final boss, mm-hmm. and uh, then you unlock the Jester. Okay. Speaking of winning the game, um, the interesting thing to me about this game is that I just thought initially that I was going to have to make it through the five levels plus the end boss, like you said, Josh, with each character. But then all of a sudden, at at some point, the game says, oh, actually, we have these episodes, and there's six of them for each character, and each of them place interesting constraints or bonuses on uh, each character, and you need to work your way through with all of those as well. <laughs> so it sort of multiplies the content of the game by six suddenly. Hmm. They give you interesting starting conditions. Like with the warrior, you might start off with some, you know, dual wielding some badass axes, uh, but then you have a curse on you, so every turn the first equipment you use might disappear on you. Um, so they do kind of interesting conditions that you got to go through and beat the game under. Yeah, and some of these are really hard, too. Like, I I, I never really... I didn't really beat any of the episodes aside from the first one with the inventor. Um, I beat a few episodes with the robot because I like that one a lot. But, yeah, some, some of these I just... It took me a while to, like, pivot my thinking to understand what they were trying to get me to do for some of these episodes. And I, uh... Like I said, it's, it's one of those games that, like, forces you into thinking different ways. Like, sometimes with Slay the Spire, for example, I found myself understanding the play space after a while and knowing where to pivot and what to do. But when the game puts that level of constraint on you from the very beginning, it sometimes locks out entire pathways that you normally might go down. Mm-hmm. If you have certain conditions on you, then entire builds might become ineffective because of that. Mm-hmm. And I I like that. I mean, I like when a game forces me to think outside the box. Um, 
I do also like when a game allows me to like get into a groove and perfect my style and then, you know, um, clean house with it. But that's always very satisfying as well. So, you know, it's a give and take, uh, it, whether you're challenging the player and forcing them to have a novel experience or letting them settle into a groove and, um, you know, be a world-beating uh, maelstrom of death and destruction. I think it's an interesting interesting uh, path for a roguelike to take. Generally speaking, uh, in a roguelike, you go through a run and you randomly get equipment or spells or what have you that kind of influences where your build is going to go. I kind of felt in Dicey Dungeons there wasn't that randomness. Like when I was playing through just the base episodes when you first play with each character, uh, you'd get different equipment, but it never really felt like things were different enough between the runs that I'd ever want to go back and play under those initial conditions again. On the other hand, these episodes are saying like, we're going to throw you down an extreme path right out the get-go. It's not like you're discovering the combos so much as you're, like you said, trying to learn what the game is teaching you. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And I think the game is... Uh, trying to teach you things in a variety of ways. One of those ways is that it allows you to be very experimental. Uh, for my money, this game is really generous with what it you know allows and lets you do. Like in some games, um, say like you have a six and it says, all right, increase the, the value by one. I think a more punitive game would just say, all right, it's still a six. But this game gives you a six and then a one dice as well. So you basically double the amount of dice you have, even if it's just a one. So if you have something else with that, you can synergize nicely. And this game is basically saying with giving you that nod, that benefit of the doubt, that it's safe to experiment and do things that maybe shouldn't work mechanically because the game will always tip the scales in your direction. And I feel like that is sort of a constant thing. Like if, if there's a margin call in this game, the game will give it to the player, and I mm-hmm. like that. I did play this game, I think, when it was earlier in early access or something like that, maybe um, a year, year and a half ago or something. I don't know when. Um, I liked it better this time around. I felt like the game was easier to get into. Uh, I, th- I think it was easier playing that first Warrior run now as compared to that. <laughs> but I also think the battle system was more legible as well, mm. which is always something you're working at as a game designer. Yeah, and I can't wait for this to come out on iOS because, like, I played it on Switch. Uh, I've also played it on PC short, uh, a little bit, but I, I mostly played on Switch, and I think this would really sing with a touchscreen interface. So uh, the moment I can get this on my phone or iPad, I will be getting it um, because I just I could see, you know, when plane rides are a thing for me once again. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a year and a half of COVID and a new baby, I think that would really help my plane rides to go quicker. Ah, for sure. Yeah, so with that, let's uh, roll the dice and try and sum up our thoughts with a three-word review. All right, my three-word review for Dicey Dungeons is A Paradise Lost. Dicey Dungeons has some interesting ideas contained within, but the game ended up rolling snake eyes. 
the minute to minute of playing the game was, for me, not compelling. The battle system is overly constrained by having a limited amount of equipment, uh, making the fights they felt formulaic for me. I just wasn't making enough interesting choices within a battle. Outside of the battle, you were kind of gathering the equipment and choosing what went in and what out, but even then, I never really changed my loadout from battle to battle, knowing that I was fighting a specific monster. You didn't have enough equipment with you uh, to really make those kind of choices or luck into a crazy combo. Um, the most fun part of the game, it was getting those gear combos, uh, but the decisions weren't happening fast enough. The episodes are a clever idea, but even with those, the game is lacking good pasting. It's stuck in an anti-Goldilocks zone. It should have been shorter, or it should have been longer. It should have been simpler, or it should have been more complex, and it suffers for being in the middle of those. I can see what the game could have been, and I can see where it got lost along the way. Very interesting. I'm definitely more positive than you in this game, but I don't disagree with anything you said outright. Um, <laughs> my three-word review is generously crafted roguelike. Uh, this game gives you a lot of different options for how to engage with it, from the very simple outset of the warrior uh, to the five other characters that all play incredibly differently, as we described, to the point that it almost feels like a different game between some of them. In addition to this, the crafted experiences that are hidden away in every run, such as the uh, bear dice that I transformed into, as I mentioned earlier, are a joy to uncover. A run didn't go by that I didn't see something new or unlock some new goal or achievement that rewarded me with a new mechanic or character, something new to experience, or a nugget of smart, snappy writing. And while this game is a roguelike, there are so many different variations in episodes that sometimes it feels like you're playing different games between them. And so that's why I think this is a generously crafted roguelike. Now, it seems to me that we had some very different thoughts on, on that particular game. So, I, uh, <laughs> like I said, I don't disagree with anything you said, but um, maybe I'm just that Goldilocks guy, uh, I, or the anti-Goldilocks, for, for that matter. Who knows? <laughs> um. <laughs> no, I got you. I mean, if I think part of it is each run lasted too long. Um, like, if you got to a longer point where you accumulated some more equipment, then you made some more choices about that, or if it lasted shorter, say it was three or four levels instead of five, then you feel like you're getting the different episode conditions at a quicker pace. But I'll tell you, know you what, what I, go ahead. I was going to say, you know what it seems to me is like might be missing from this and most other rogue building or um, deck building roguelikes have is like the artifact system, right? And uh, we see it in Slay the Spire. We're going to see it in our next game. But mm -hmm. that might actually help differentiate builds more. And if if you get some stuff like that going on, maybe it makes it more mechanically complex and interesting and they can ramp up the difficulty a bit more. Um, so, I don't know. Just a thought. I, I'm sure it was probably toyed with. Terry's probably thinking, yeah, I tried that. Didn't work. But <laughs> No, that's a good point. I think one of the things that Artifact System, so to speak, would have brought in is kind of having two different paths for upgrades um, and then you can kind of play around with the combinations between those two. When your only path is equipment then that's more limited in the different combinations you can come up with based off that. Yeah that's a good point and, and with the classes in this game it seems to me that like the best way to maximize your efficacy is to play to your strength which is your limit break. Um, 
or your um, whatever your character's special ability happens to be. So yeah, I, I, I can understand what you mean by I can understand what you mean by the uh, the changes not coming quick enough. But I don't know for for whatever reason, like maybe I wasn't. Maybe I'm just not as impatient, <laughs> but um, I don't know. I was uh, maybe the, or, or maybe my play sessions are just like, you know, 40 minutes in the evening seem to work as a good time frame for me. So um, maybe we're just coming at this from different places and that's fine too. Part of what makes this podcast great. Indeed. Um, so with that, why don't we talk about our next game? Luck be a landlord. Luck Be a Landlord is a roguelike slot machine where you choose different symbols to be included in your slot machine. You um, pull the one-armed bandit, and then every five to ten spins, you have to come up with an absurdly high amount of rent to play your landlord. <laughs> I did think this was funny that they basically just stick the the player in an apartment and say, um, you can't go work or anything, but just keep pulling the slot machine. And if you win enough, you'll be able to pay me rent. Otherwise, I guess you're out on your ass. I don't know. This guy <laughs> must have a hell of a lot of tenant turnover. <laughs> you think so? I mean, I can tell you just from playing the game myself. Yes, there is a lot of eviction notices that go out. It's like <laughs> almost a comedically simplified um political line fed into the game but it was kind of cheesy it worked for me it is i like their elevator pitch or rather i liked their um their storefront page blurb which is luckily landlord is a roguelike deck builder about using a slot machine to earn rent money and defeat capitalism i don't <laughs> exactly know how successfully paying your rent defeats capitalism but sure <laughs> why not Anyway, uh, uh, for my money, I think this is an interesting game because, like you said, it's a deck-building roguelite where you're manipulating slot machine odds, which to me is way more interesting. Uh, manipulating slot machines is always fun and interesting. And mm -hmm. uh, this game is very charming with what it does with that uh, core mechanic. And the decision-making it, it builds into that is very nice gambling goodness. Yeah, for sure. And... Uh... Besides just having the strategic place, it works well as a slot machine, too. Like, slot machines all about that kind of fast and furious. You pull the level lever, you get a bunch of pretty sound effects and lights, and you win or you don't, and you got to keep going. Like, there's a whole ind gaming industry out there devoted to trying to get people um, to play slot machines even more. Uh, but this is kind of like a, a nice more light-hearted take on the genre by making it an actual video game instead of just a gambling thing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that, that I think, is sort of the, the key here, is taking a, a slot machine from being a gambling mechanic to um, a method for delivery of RNG uh, a la a deck builder. Mm -hmm. And we have to credit that idea, uh, Dan... Delorio, who goes by Trampoline Time, um, uh, the developer of this game. So uh, good job on Trampoline Time for this really cool idea. I don't think I've seen it anywhere else, and I really enjoyed the, uh, the implementation. You know what it reminded me of is uh, Reseteer, but stripped down. Basically, huh. instead, of a mer instead of a merchant, uh, you're a casino slot machine player, and you have to make rent 
I guess that part sort of stays the same. Uh, you're still trying to make the rent, but your method for delivering it is much, much different. I guess that is probably the one comparison I did not see coming with this game. Uh, but yes, there is a, a steadily increasing rent that you have to pay uh, to your landlord after any number of spins. Um, but then after you pay a couple of uh, rents to your landlord, the local communist underground resistance <laughs> contacts you. And I liked this part. You got a couple of powers in the game. Uh, with each time you pay your rent, you get an additional two symbol rerolls and you get an additional two symbol removals. Uh, we'll explain what symbols are first and why that's important, but it was a nice um, extra twist to the storyline. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I do like that. Um, what was the name? Kami McComrade was, you get the email. <laughs> what is it, from redscare.com or at redscare.com? I don't know what it was. Yeah, it was it was funny. They have all kinds of little quips like that in the game, and the game definitely has a very tongue-in-cheek attitude with all of its um, writing, uh, however slight it may be. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point, Josh, maybe we should talk a little bit about the uh, slot machine symbols, since that's sort of the main thing you're um, working with with this game. And basically what this functions as is a deck builder, but a slot machine. And each time you <laughs> choose a symbol, it's added to your quote unquote deck. And then every time you pull the lever of the slot machine, your deck is dealt out randomly on those slot machine places. It's a good way to put it. I think there's 20 different slots or 20 different spaces that you can have your various symbols show up in. Uh, and the symbols, not only, you know, they'll get you cash money on their own, they'll also combo up with each other in various ways. Some symbols affect their neighbors. Some symbols destroy certain other symbols if they're next door or if they're in the corner far away. Uh, sometimes you get, like, crabs. If you get three crabs in a row, you get uh, cash money off of that um, so there's all these different symbols and there are a lot of them there are so many different symbols so many symbols that in fact they start to sort of group themselves into different themes uh, you call these clicks Josh but I, I like that uh, for me I, I called them themes in my head when I was playing and uh, I always sort of liked thinking about what theme I wanted this slot machine for me to have because this <laughs> is the best way for you to sort of get the synergies that you're thinking of and I think my most effective one was ghosts and booze um, or uh, I think animals animals and animals and rocks maybe something like that i don't know i had <laughs> I had a few weird ones but they they do sort of start to coalesce around broad ideas and some of them overlap into multiple ideas which i also like yeah i mean i call them clicks because it's a math term about a graph where you have like nodes that don't interact with each other they're just connected to each other but like brian said these things are uh, they do they they do kind of span different things like you have your beer and your wine which are also they're drunk by the dwarves because dwarves are a bunch of drunkards but also by like the billionaires and you know there's these kind of things that span these different themes um, and kind of the fun of the game is learning how to make a good build by choosing the right symbols I think important to mention is that after each roll you get to choose a new symbol, one of three, to add into your deck. Uh, the power I mentioned before with after you make rent, uh, one of the powers is you get to re-roll the symbols and get a different selection out there. 
And just like all great deck building roguelikes, this game preys on that idea of I just need this one symbol and my build will be complete, or I just need this one card and my build will be perfect. And <laughs> inevitably, if you're thinking that way, you will get fucked and you will never get it. <laughs> I did so much better with this game the first time I played it before I knew anything about it. As soon as I got that little <laughs> bit of knowledge, um, I went from like surviving for seven or eight weeks to surviving two weeks. And <laughs> But it, just, it, it was fun to like build myself back up as I was learning how the game worked. Yeah, I, I liked that. But then I also liked the fact that uh, this developer just always was putting out content updates or fixes or, you know, mechanical tweaks that sort of readjusted and, and forced me to relearn what was going on with uh, the play space. And, you know, you could know all the cards or all the symbols, so to speak, and what they do. And then all of a sudden a content patch comes in and some of those relationships change or additional ones are added that um, make make what you were trying to do before less effective and you're forced to relearn again which to me is actually kind of the fun part like i i enjoy mastery over a play space like this but i also enjoy learning and figuring out what's going on so to me that wasn't a problem it was more like a oh cool more fun more more to be had with this game uh there's a longer runway before i'm done with it i guess <laughs> <laughs> no for sure this the game's developer puts out updates to this at kind of an absurd rate. I think like a couple of times a week at least. Uh, I'm not as sure. Brian, do you know? Yeah, actually, it, there's a timer in the game, and it, it's every 24 hours there's a hot fix. So um, not all of those are content updates, but there's at least like bug fixes and patches um, in, in each 24-hour drop, as I understand it. And there's an active Discord for this game going on. Um, so... You know, uh, Danny, Dan rather, is a, a busy guy and uh, he's doing a great job out there. I really enjoy this game. And uh, I think so far, all of the symbols and, and things of that have been nicely balanced from my perspective and interesting and thematically appropriate, too. Like, I really like uh, how these things act with each other. We, di we didn't even really talk about, like, interactions between specific cards that much but you know there's like cats and they go after milk and then mice that go after cheese and the cats also go after the mice and you know it's there's a whole like ecosystem of cards playing off of each other in this and it goes so far afield you know you have like bounty hunters and thieves and vandals and tombstones and all kinds of gems and scuba divers there's a lot of like um, late game cards or late game symbols that kind of um, they destroy certain symbols that are next to them and they get uh, more powerful because of that. Um, but it's kind of like, does your build have enough of these in here when you get one of these super rare symbols later in the game to take advantage of all of that? Or do you have to let them go because, you know, you didn't connect en or collect enough pebbles on the way? to help out the geologist at his job. Right, and, and you have to balance your approach between like getting big payouts from destroying cards and getting a big, you know, all at once drop of coins towards your rent. Or do you stock up on all these uh, cards that are giving you low, lower amounts of coins, but consistently round after round, right? Like mm -hmm. a diamond is something you can get relatively early on from, you know, if you hold on to coal 20 rounds, it turns into a diamond. And you get three coins from that, which, Three coins is like a threshold that will get you through the first, you know, maybe eight levels if you have a full um, slot machine giving you three coins per square. 
But if you keep that there and you're trying to win the entire game, three coins is going to cut it, right? You're going to have to find some synergies for that or um, find some uh, cards that are going to destroy or, you know, symbols that are going to destroy it and give you a big payout and then keep that, that treadmill churning. So mm-hmm. it, it, it doesn't let you like be content with what's on your, your symbol board. You have to continually tweak and ramp it up. And that's what Josh was talking about earlier with these increasing rents that you're asked to pay, right? Because rent never stays the same. There's no mm. rent control in Luck Be a Landlord. Always goes up. Always goes up. Those <laughs> damn capitalists. <laughs> So one of the great things about this game, I think, is that kind of all the different combinations you can get with the different symbols. Um, I think kind of the skill of reading this game is learning to distinguish and remember what symbols go with what. So you can have a build that specializes instead of getting scattered around um, and p- picking up random symbols that do, don't do you any good. They'll just take up space later on when you need to be making money at a higher rate. Yes, indeed. I think my first successful run of this game was the result of like three different pivots. Um, I, you know, started off with like, all right, I get a lot of puppies here. We're going to do an animal build. Uh, And then all of a sudden I got a moon and I got an artifact that upgraded all my dogs to wolves. And so I was like, all right, we got a wolf and moon build here. And then I got a bunch of witches and symbols. So I had moon, witches, symbols, wolves. You know, we're, we're working with like a Halloween theme here. Very spooky. And, <laughs> yeah, very spooky. And that, that got me most of the way there, but I needed an extra kick at the end. And by that time, I had started accumulating some gems. And so I got a billionaire. And, you know, my billionaire loved all my gems. But then to get me over the finish line, I had to take the guillotine artifact which executed all my billionaires, but also gave me a huge payout to push me over the line to the finish. <laughs> um, and <laughs> it was pretty funny, but um, also thematically appropriate. And, um, you know, that didn't last for long. Obviously, some some unrest set in, and I eventually lost in the postgame. But uh, it was a very dramatic way for a rogue-like slot machine game to play out just to get me a single win. A lot more of a story than you'd expect, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yep. I mentioned that, you know, there's all these frequent updates going on with the game, and I'd be interested in seeing how this game does maybe another six months from now, how it plays. I kind of feel like there's a downside to all those frequent updates and all the new symbols coming in. Um, if this is a game about picking a build or a couple of like quasi-builds you have in your deck, uh, you have s- some different uh, themes going on that relate to each other and synergize with each other, um, the more possible number of symbols that are out there, the harder it is to hone in on a build and get the ones you're looking for you know if you're looking for dogs then it's a lot easier to grab more dog symbols when there's only 20 other symbols instead of there's 100 other symbols so i feel like it's almost like working against itself to add new symbols in the loop in the mix 
Yeah, so undoubtedly the developer is tracking uh, what items synergize with what others behind the scene. So it wouldn't be too much of a stretch to say they could tweak those odds to allow the synergistic items to appear more frequently hmm. uh, once you you know start to add in enough items that it would become prohibitive to having a coherent strategy. Unless you just also increase the amount of synergies, which seems like the harder way to do this, right? Like I, I would probably go the former rather than the latter. Hmm. No, I, I agree with you. Like, um, it's a lot easier to auto magically make the right things show up or have a higher chance of showing up instead of trying to, you know, connect billionaires to, I don't know, puppies all of a sudden. Yeah, billionaires and oranges don't go, go that well together, but, you know, billionaires and gemstones do. So, you know, you can, um, you can do that behind the scenes. And most roguelike deck builders would do this with a class choice at the beginning of the game, right? And we don't have that in this game until maybe we do someday. But eh, that that may, you know, choose your theme for your slot machine. It seems sort of limiting. I like the idea of sort of the discovery from this vast array of options, and then maybe the game funnels you down a particular path once you start to choose what you're thinking of going for. What I would have liked to see, uh, maybe even something simpler, is something Slay the Spire did where you could choose an artifact at the beginning of the game. And if you had that for here, you could kind of direct your build earlier on. Because um, for when I played it, a lot of the builds were kind of like late game payoffs and you had to kind of hope you'd find the right thing instead of being, you know, you might find an artifact that sets you on a completely different way. There, There is the power you get to remove symbols from your slot deck, but uh, you don't always... It's uh, You don't have as man- many of the choices as you want. Yeah, your other power is to re-roll the set of three, as, as we said before, and that gives you another three, but three out of, excuse me, three out of the possibility space that we're working with here is really not that much. And we haven't talked that much about the items or um, artifacts that are available to you in this game, but you do get a choice of them. Um, I think every time you pay rent, you also mm-hmm. get to choose an artifact after that. You get and a choice of three. Mm-hmm. Yeah, once again, letting you choose your artifacts is similar to like a boss in Slay the Spire, as, as we talked about before. And um, that's interesting. Like I like it was always very rewarding and fun to sort of figure out which of these is going to play best into the strategy I'm trying to build or which of these will direct the strategy I'm going to take going forward. Can I tell you about my favorite artifact? Please do. This is something I wish the game did a lot more of, um, but I, it was an artifact that let me swap two symbols on the board, like change Whoa. their positions. I've never gotten that one. That sounds awesome. It was like a completely different game. Now, <laughs> I really wish that the developer included this power as like a weekly rent sort of thing, like uh twice per rent period you can swap two symbols or even just two adjacent symbols and then that really starts like bringing the player agency and strategy up because the entire choices you make in the game are about what symbols you add what symbols you remove when you re-roll and what artifacts you pick it's a slot machine there's not a lot of the mechanical you know it's not like a mario platformer or anything like that uh but adding that in really kind of like adds into the player's arsenal and the vocabulary of the game yeah you really are just sort of setting up the dominoes and hoping they fall in the direction you want them to right like you you don't take that active of a hand you pull the lever and and hope for the best i think that's a good point and it actually does kind of play into like the 
uh, anti-capitalist uh, the theme of this game, right? Like the the preconditions are set. It's just a matter of where you are along the power curve. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Yeah, you um, not a lot you can do to change things once they're going. Oh, there's there is some you can do. So I feel like that's not har- a hardcore enough stand for this game's pseudo cap uh, communism to take. Oh, there's some things <laughs> you can do about capitalism. Let's go on to some three-word reviews. For me, this game was, and I haven't talked about this yet, but it was a second screen sensation. Uh, This is the perfect podcast game, and if you know anything about me, the perfect podcast game gives any game a one-star bump out of five. So uh, this game was already uh, working from an advantage there. I've never played this game without doing something else at the same time, Um, you know, whether that be uh, watching a video or uh, listening to a podcast, but... Uh, if you want a perfect second screen experience or a great game to play while, you know, listening to a music podcast or an audiobook, look no further. Take another pull on that lever, take another pull on your drink, and with any luck, you'll defeat your evil landlord. <laughs> Alright, my three-word review for this game is Fast Slots Jackpot. Luck Be a Landlord is a compact distillation of the roguelike formula in a novel format. It takes good lessons from slot machines that it imitates and delivers quick dopamine hits each game. There's enough strategy and simple selection and removal to give the game some depth. Usually the slow and gradual build adjustment isn't enough to keep a game going on its own, but the rapid-fire nature of Landlord keeps those decisions decisions coming at the right pace. I wish it had more depth to it in terms of player agency, but you can't deny that it makes for a breezy and enjoyable experience. The game's success, despite its lower quality graphics, is a testament to a winning formula and proof that it's not too late in the game for solo developers to hit the jackpot. Now, since you mentioned pace in your three-word review, I'm, I'm understanding now why you picked pace as your one-word differentiator between these two. It seems to me you were sort of hitting on the pace the game was tolling, or, um, doling out its treats, so to speak, in terms of mechanical pivots or interesting things happening on the screen. I enjoy when interesting things happen. <laughs> Definitely one of the things I look for when I'm playing games. Yeah, that's fair. I, I just, for me, like pace wasn't an issue for Dicey Dungeons, so I totally understand why why you felt that way. And maybe like if you get a few like boring runs or things that like you know felt rote in a row with Dicey Dungeons, I could definitely understand the like lack of pace being a, an issue. But um, I agree with you that the pace of um, Luck Be a Landlord was always nice and a treat. Like, it was the perfect thing to pick up for a little bit, have play in the background, and then, you know, you're done. You, you did a run, you won or lost, and it's over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this game, you can uh, you can go through a whole game in five minutes here. Uh, it doesn't take a whole lot. To, uh, it, like Brian said, you can listen to a podcast. Like, it's not a game that requires your total concentration, especially once you learn to read the game. And you know what you're looking for, you know what you need in your build, and what you don't. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but to my uh, point earlier, I think uh, I I initially chose Dicey Dungeons to pair with Luck Be a Landlord based on the framing device, because I thought dice and slot machines might go together. It's a but great these games idea. Are... <laughs> yeah, it, it was a great idea, in theory. But these games really couldn't be too different in terms of like um, roguelike deck builders. Like I think they're almost opposites in terms of how they approach the same genre you know one is like sort of a um 
I mean, they're both run based, but one is very much framed in, um, you know, writing and, and I'm talking about Dicey Dungeons. Well, mm-hmm. not writing. One is very much framed in um, a, a variety of starting conditions. And the other is framed in a variety of ending conditions. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in Dicey Dungeons, it feels to me that it pivots on its ability to put you in different interesting starting situation and preconditions. Whereas mm-hmm. in Luck Be a Landlord right now, all of those are the same. But the ending places you end up are supremely different. So while the framing, at least in terms of theme, might sort of be similar... The way they actually end up playing feels drastically different. I agree with what you're talking about with Dicey Dungeons. I like that you called it a generous roguelike. I certainly agree with that part. Um, It gives you what you're looking for. Like A lot of roguelikes, when you're trying to develop that kind of layers of interlocking systems, you're trying to think of interesting combinations of things for players to get into. With Dicey Dungeons... My gripe with the game is you don't find those interesting combinations on the way, but I do like how those episodes start you off right away in the interesting combination. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. It's sort of, um, it's having the game um, present the fun to the player instead of making them seek it out. Um, I think it's a lot more of a directed experience than luck be a landlord luck be a landlord you're uh, being asked to discover a lot more whereas discovery is sort of forced upon you in in dicey dungeons (laughs) (laughs) but it's different styles uh i I don't think think... one's better or worse yeah Mm -hmm. and and obviously different production values right like i think maybe if terry cavanaugh made dicey dungeons alone we'd get something on the level of the production values of luck be a landlord but he had a team working with him this time. So we got what we did with Dicey Dungeons. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, for sure. You get more people working with you, artists, musicians. Um, specialization is a good thing, and people produce better work when they're specializing, generally speaking. Yeah, agreed. Uh, not not to say that uh, I don't know where the music from um, Luck Be a Landlord came from. I'll check the credits after this and maybe insert it here. But that music also slapped. Um, so with that, we want to say thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, then sharing it with uh, folks you think might enjoy it as well is the best way to help us out. Feel free to drop us a note at pixelatedplaygrounds at gmail.com or hit us up on Twitter at pixelplaypod if you have any thoughts or responses. Uh, and for us here at Pixelated Playgrounds, I'm Brian Skersha. I'm Josh Galecki. Take care and keep on rolling those dice. So what is it about the uh, casino theme that works so well with roguelikes? Ooh, um, I've got some thoughts here. All right, go for it. So casinos are kind of like a laboratory. There's been a lot of, call it evolution, if you will, to create compelling experiences based around randomness. You know, randomness, but enough randomness that the player feels like they're winning, but enough that the house is making a profit afterwards. 
um, see like how in blackjack the good tables in Vegas only do five to six on or six to five on blackjacks instead of uh, three to two. Well, uh, casinos wouldn't exist if the house didn't always win. Exactly, exactly. So you got a lot of really refined experiences based around randomness. Now, in terms of video games, I would say that in their genre DNA, roguelikes have the most randomness as compared to anything else. Like, that's part of the experience, is you get a procedurally generated dungeon, you get uh, different builds, you get random items going around here. Uh, It happens in a way that doesn't happen with other genres. So, finding what casinos have developed and putting that into a roguelike formula seems to be a pretty good one to me. Yeah, I agree with you on all those points, but I want to push back on one thing, whereas uh, I think the fun thing about a roguelike is learning the mechanics and figuring out you know, what is going on here and then slowly but surely mastering it. That is not the fun part about a casino. The fun <laughs> part about a casino is going in and knowing what you're doing and doing your best to beat the house. If you go into a casino not knowing what you're doing, you're not going to have a very good time. <laughs> um, so I think that is where these two things diverge in a big way. And I guess the difference between the learning casino experience and the learning roguelike experience is there's not money on the line. Um, so you're, you're free to experiment a bit more. And especially with a game like Dicey Dungeons where you know experimentation is encouraged and generously accommodated, that is not a big deal. And it, even in a case like Luck Be a Landlord where it produces delightful results experimentation that is um it's guillotine all the billionaire <laughs> yeah it's fun right whereas if you're experimenting at the blackjack table in vegas you're not only going to get some really mean looks but you're probably also going to lose a fuck ton of money video games the cheaper vice <laughs> yeah definitely uh in terms of gambling cocaine or video games i will choose video games every time <laughs> <laughs>